Well, as has been mentioned a few times already, today is the last Lord's Day of 2009. And just think about that and you, you start to reflect a little bit, don't you? Um, but you think about even in the life of this, this church, 2009 has been a really big year. You moved into this new beautiful church facility that the Lord in his grace and in his mercy and his goodness gave to us as a place in which we can worship and in a place in which others from our community would, would come and we continue to pray that this would be a light to the community. You also celebrated 80 years as a church in 2009 which was a great celebration that we had back in October. You also brought a new uh, associate onto the pastoral staff. I was going to say a new young associate, but I figured that might not be too nice to the senior pastor, so I won't say that. <laughs> For many of you, 2009 has also been a year in which big things have happened in your own lives, in your individual lives. For some, there have been highlights. Maybe you got married. Or one of your sons or daughters, or grandsons or daughters got married. Some of you might have graduated in 2009. Some of you might be celebrating, might have celebrated a new addition to your family in 2009. Some of you might have celebrated a special birthday this past year. Or some of you might have even become a Christian in 2009. But for others, there have been some very hard, some very deeply difficult times. 2009 has been a tough year for you. You may have lost a loved one. You uh, or someone you love may have struggled with illness, may still be struggling with illness, may have discovered a sickness, may have had some very hard relationship issues, you may have had financial hardships in 2009. So you look back at 2009 and you reflect on it as, as being a tough year. While these last few days, this last week of 2009 might be a time of reflection, for you, you might be thinking of both the mountains and the, and the valleys of this year, but these days are also a time of transition where our thoughts start to move ahead a little bit to 2010. You might be thinking, well, what might this next year bring? What's nice about those kind of thoughts is that we really have no idea, don't we? There might be some things we know about, things that already, you know, sort of take up a spot on the calendar. There might be uh, some, I know we have lots of gals in our church that are expecting babies in 2010. Um, there might be events that you've put on your calendar already. Um, there might be vacations that you're looking forward to in 2010. But for the most part, you have no idea about the circumstances that will come your way this coming year. Even though I said in some ways it's nice not to know that, it can, it can also be somewhat discomforting, can't it? Not to know. Thoughts about the unknown can be scary. And I think that discomfort, that sense of discomfort, comes because we have this sort of gnawing feeling that we might meet up with negative circumstances in this next year. What happens if something goes wrong? What happens if something doesn't go according to plan? What happens if something goes sideways? What happens if my best laid plans are forced to take a detour, an unexpected veering off the road. Well, it's at those times that we need something firm to hold on to. It's at those times that we need to be able to anchor ourselves to something that is sure. And the best way to do that is to pre prepare now for the unknown, for the, for the surprises that will happen tomorrow and into the future. 
Well, this morning we're going to look at the book named after the prophet Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, under the inspiration of God, will give us some wisdom for preparing for the unknown circumstances that will undoubtedly come our way in 2010. Before we look at some of those from that book, since this is part of our series in the Minor Prophets, let me just give you the lay of the land a little bit and set your bearings on the background of this book. Habakkuk was the last prophet sent to Judah. You'll remember that during the time of the prophets, the land had been, was a divided kingdom under Solomon, and now it had been split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, the name of that kingdom was Judah, and the north was called Israel. Well, Habakkuk was the last prophet sent to the southern kingdom before they were taken captives, captive by the Babylonians, or as they were sometimes called, the Chaldeans. Israel had already been exiled, and now Judah was about to be exiled. And Habakkuk prophesied probably somewhere between 615 and 605, before Christ. We know that because God talks about raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians there in chapter 1, verse 6, and we know from history that they invaded right around 605 B.C. And so Habakkuk prophesied just before that time. As for an outline, this book is basically a a two-way conversation between God and the prophet Habakkuk. You see in chapter 1, Verses 1 to 4, Habakkuk starts there by questioning God. And to summarize the questions that he's asking, it's basically, how can you let evil happen? How can you let evil happen, God? Habakkuk sees injustice and violence and destruction happening all around, and it seems like God isn't doing anything about it. And so his question is, how long will you let this go on, God? How long will you keep silent? We ask those Same kinds of questions from time to time, don't don't we? What about the war in Afghanistan, where we've heard now that 134 of our soldiers have been killed since our presence in that war? Or if you bring it a little bit closer to home, what about the, the staggering numbers of babies that have been aborted in our land? How long, Lord, we ask? Why don't you do something? Those are tough questions. Well, for Habakkuk, God answers his question, but he answers not quite in the way Habakkuk had expected. Habakkuk probably expected God to say, all right, I'll send someone to get you out of this mess. Thanks for, thanks for calling me. Thanks for talking to me. I'll just start a revival where people will start worshiping me again. Well, God does answer Habakkuk. He does say he'll do something, but that something is that he'll raise up the Babylonians. He'll raise up this wicked nation. Instead of revival, God's going to send judgment. And the problem for Habakkuk is that not only was Babylon a pagan nation, but they were nasty people. God uses words there like fierce, impetuous, dreaded, feared, violent. They were nasty people. And so now Habakkuk is really confused. That answer presents even more problems for him. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, it's his turn to talk again. After God has answered, he's questioned, God has answered. In chapter 1, verse 12, he starts talking again. And for the second time, he questions God. How can this be, God? I know the people here in Judah are bad, but the Babylonians are even worse. Surely you could think of another way to to fix this. 
But these are really profound questions because they ask why God does what he does and why he does it in the way he does it. These are the kinds of questions that we have all the time, isn't it? Well, just finishing our outline there, God answers Habakkuk's question beginning in chapter 2, verse 2, and right to the end of that chapter. And then in chapter 3, the portion that was read for us today, we have a beautiful song written by Habakkuk where he talks about the greatness of God. And so this book is basically made up of this conversation between God and the prophet. And we want to know how Habakkuk could go from questioning God to praising God at the end. As God keeps answering Habakkuk's questions, something happens to this prophet. He starts to change. He starts to to focus less on himself and his problems and and the circumstances around him. And he starts to focus more on God and on his greater purposes. Even though God's ways are, are mysterious to us, and they were mysterious to Habakkuk, he starts to recognize that God knows best. And as he starts to understand God, Habakkuk starts to develop this this sort of quiet confidence, this renewed trust in God. And he ends up secure, knowing that God does, in fact, care for his people. You can really see this change in perspective by comparing comparing Habakkuk's first conversation to God to his last one. In chapter 1, it's almost like he's complaining to God about the, the job that God is doing at being God. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Or, down to verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, he says rightly. And you cannot look with wickedness, on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously then? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Now, at the surface, these aren't bad questions. Because sometimes we just don't understand why God does what he does. And we have biblical examples of people that, that, that question God's actions. It's like, come on, God, don't you see what's going on here? Are you just going to ignore the violence? Are you just going to ignore the injustice, the fact that people are, are taking advantage of other people? You're God. Aren't you going to do something about this? But we need to be careful when we ask those kind of questions because we don't want to ask them in a way that we cast doubt on the fact that God is really in control. We don't need to remind God to pay attention. But that's almost what it seems like Habakkuk is doing here. But go over to chapter 3, portion that was read. Here we have another prayer to God. We have one in chapter 1, now we have another one here. Only now Habakkuk seems to have changed his outlook. Right at the beginning of the chapter there. He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So you can see here that Habakkuk actually took his eyes off the circumstances now, And he started looking to God. And then his outlook totally changed. When he looked to God, he recognized that it didn't matter what was going on. It didn't matter what injustices seemed to be happening right around him. All that mattered was that God was in control. And that everyone is finally and decisively dependent on God's mercy. 
In your wrath, remember mercy. So what is it about God that caused Habakkuk to change? What did he learn about God? Well, I want to point out four things from this book this morning that Habakkuk learned and that we ought to know and that will help us to be prepared for the unknown circumstances that might come our way in 2010. Number one is he learned to recount God's actions in the past. He learned to recount God's actions in the past. One of the best ways to prepare for surprises in the future is to look back at what God did in 2009 and what he's done in your whole life up until now and what he did all the decades and centuries and millenniums throughout history. It's amazing how many times, especially in the Old Testament, whenever the people were tempted to doubt God, they thought back to what God had done before. They especially go back and remember God's unmistakable hand in in delivering his people from the slavery of Egypt in the days of Moses. Those events are rehearsed so often in in the Old Testament. They kept on coming up up and again as I was reading. That, That one year as I was reading through the Bible, every time it came up, I wrote in my margin, remember Egypt, remember Egypt. Find that over and over again. And it serves as a reminder to me that whenever I'm tempted to, to, to doubt what God is doing or to question what God is doing, I just need to remember what he's done in my life in the past in rescuing me from slavery, slavery to sin. Happens here in Habakkuk too. We read the first two verses, we read the first two verses there of chapter three, but then he goes on to recount God's words, works right up to verse 15 to show that God demonstrated his power in the past and that he will show it again. That same God that has worked in the past will continue to work in these circumstances around Habakkuk and in the circumstances of our life as well. The language there is written in poetry, so it's not quite as clear, but it all refers back to what God had done in, de- in delivering Israel. You'll, you'll see words there like plagues and sea and horses and surge of waters. Well, all those should remind you of the deliverance of Israel from from the slavery of Egypt. Habakkuk is pointing back to God's acts in history to remind himself that even though it might not seem like it right now, God is firmly and safely in control. And be assured of that. He's acted in the past, and he will act again, even in these circumstances. If you're a Christian, remind yourself often of what God has done in the past, not only in saving Israel, but in saving you. And since he has saved you and rescued you through Christ, you can know that he will always be for you. Even though things might seem unfair, might be out of control in your life, you think, you can know that God is in control. He knows your situation. He'll deliver you in a way that only he knows and that he knows is best. Might not be the way you and your logic think is the best way to get yourself out of this mess, but he knows best. He is for you. He will be with you. He will protect you. He will keep you. He will act to deliver you. If you're not sure about God and about Christianity, if this is all true, these truths can assure you that this God that we serve acts in history It's not just fairy tale stuff. God really did send plagues to convince the Egyptian pharaoh to release Israel from slavery to Egypt. And then he parted the Red Sea to ensure their escape. And he made the sun stand still for a time 
so that his people could defeat another army. He acted in supernatural ways, but in history, to preserve his people. And most miraculously, all of this rescuing acts, those rescuing acts of God are all a, a pointer to when he acted in history about 21 decades ago by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, from heaven, born of a virgin, to become man so that he could live a perfect life and die as a perfect sacrifice on the cross just outside Jerusalem. He did this to deliver not a nation, but individuals, people like you, if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ to save you from sin. God has done amazing things, and we can be sure he's in control of the future as we remind ourselves about how God has acted in the past by saving his people. Well, another way to prepare for whatever circumstances we face this year is to listen to God. Listen to God. And there's one helpful hint in Habakkuk to help you listen to God, and and that one is to be quiet. (laughs) That's almost too obvious, isn't it? In order to listen, one must be quiet. I know that if I'm in in the kitchen and the dishwasher is going, I find it hard to hear someone just over in the living room, kind of all the same room, telling me something. I can see them. I can see their lips moving. And I know they're saying something to me, but the noise over here is drowning out the noise over there. Habakkuk has an interesting little nuance to this idea of being quiet in order to hear God. You remember in the first chapter, Habakkuk complains, and then God answers by saying he'll raise up the Chaldeans as a means of judgment. But then Habakkuk takes issue with that, starting in verse 12, and he starts to question God. He says, why would you choose the wicked, you know, ruthless Babylonians and And why would you let them have their way with your people? That doesn't make sense. And then look at the end of verse 13. It says there, Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? To Habakkuk, all he sees is that God seems to be letting this wicked nation win. They're winning God. Just at the time when God should be acting, and should be defending his people, according to Habakkuk, there's no answer from God. All he hears is silence. But then God answers Habakkuk's question, starting in chapter 2, verse 2. And then if you zip forward right to the end of chapter 2 in verse 20, look at what he says. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be what? Be silent before him. Let all the earth be silent. First he accuses God of being silent, and then God says, no, let the earth be silent before him. Habakkuk questions God and his silence, but now God tells Habakkuk and all of us to stop talking. Don't ask so many questions. Just let God do the talking. Listen to God. Allow him to do his work. He will vindicate his name. He will vindicate his people. Just listen. Trust God and his word. Practice a, a, a quiet trust, a, a quiet confidence in God. This is what trusting looks like. It's listening to him, trusting him to do what he says he will do. Well, how are we supposed to listen? Well, the best way 
the most authoritative way is on our shelves. It's, it's in our hands. We have one big book that's made up of 66 smaller books that are words from God. And when you put it all together, it is the word of God for us. This is God's word. This book talks about the creation, talks about the fall, talks about God's plan of saving his people, reaching its apex with what we've just celebrated, the birth of the Savior. And then this book looks forward to the second coming of God in glory. And when we face those yet unknown circumstances of life, the one place we ought to run is to God. And the, one, and the way we run to God is through his word. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So how can you listen to God's word? Well, as we move into 2010, we want to give you a measurable way to spend time in God's word. I want to challenge you today. Why don't you commit yourself to reading through the Bible this year? I know that seems like kind of a, a, a huge mountain to climb right now, but if you ask God to help you with this, and if you commit yourself to 20 to 30 minutes a day of silence before God and his word, you can do this. We thought that one way to help you to do this is to do it together with other people in the church and to do it in bite-sized pieces. I know you've all probably seen Bible reading plans before, but we've suggested one there in your bulletins, you might have seen it this morning, that might make it more doable. And you can take a look at that if you want. I know I tried these for years and I'd always get frustrated when I missed a few days. And I'd get too far behind and then I'd quit. I know some of you probably have had that experience as well. But the plan we're suggesting here allows you to miss a day here and there, that's why I like it, and not get too far behind. It only has 25 readings a month. So if there's a 31-day month, you're allowed to miss six days and you can still be on target. If it's a 28-day month, you might have to not miss so many days in February. But it's a plan that's doable. You read from four different sections of the Bible every day. If you have access to the internet, you can download it from the website that's uh, in your bulletin there. You can print it off and, and just cut it into bookmarks and then off you go. Um, if you don't have access, we have made a few copies available for you. We've already cut up the bookmarks and they're on the information table right outside the office. You can pick up a set today. If they, we run out, we'll make some more for you. But you read, just grab a set of bookmarks, start reading, and, uh, and then you're on your way. And then if you decide to do it, I'm just asking if you would please let me know. Um, I, I've done this plan for the last number of years and I'm going to do it again, but it'd be good to know who's doing this with me. And I thought that maybe it'd be good to figure out a way of somehow being able to, to keep each other accountable, to chat, maybe to email about what we're learning. But this is all just one way of allowing God to speak to us every day, one way of expressing our quiet confidence in God. That's as individuals, but we also want to be the kind of church that gives priority to God and his word. And one way is by doing a, reading through the Bible together as a body. But even in our way we structure our services, we want to be seen as people who are about God's word, who want to listen to God. Plain and simple, we want to hear from God. That's why we gather every Lord's Day. We want the Holy Spirit to take God's word and to speak truth into our lives and to change us, and to make us grow as his people. That's why we give such a priority to the exposition of God's word here from Sunday to Sunday. What do we want people to say when they leave the church on the Lord's Day? 
We don't want them primarily to say, that was great music, or that was an entertaining message. We want them to be able to say, I heard from God this morning. That could come through the words of the songs, or, or through the prayers, or through the reading of the word, through the proclamation of the word as given by the pastor. But as we spend time being silent under God and his word in 2010, we'll prepare ourselves better for whatever might come our way. We'll have that right perspective in mind when those mysterious ways of God come to our lives. Well, the third way to prepare for the circumstances of life in, in 2010 is to live by faith. Habakkuk in chapter 2 verse 4 says some words that God used, just one little verse, part of a verse, to change the course of history. That line in chapter 2 verse 4, the righteous or the just will live by faith. That line was picked up by the New Testament writers in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. And it was also read by a German monk named Martin Luther. And when he read those words, he saw how this was unlike anything he had ever been taught by the religion in which he was entrenched. This verse crashed into the system that taught that God could only be pleased through fastings and prayers and good works. If this verse was true, then Luther started to think, there's got to be a different way to please God. And he saw the futile way that his own efforts had of pleasing God. He could not, never meet up to God's law, to God's standard, through good works or through these rituals. What Luther read in Habakkuk 2.4 was so revolutionary in Luther's thinking and stood in such a contrast to the Roman system of that day that it led him to nail his 95 theses on the door at the University of Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. And that started the Reformation. Reformation in, in, in which this church still stands. It was the fact that justification or having a standing with God comes through faith alone, through Christ alone, and not through works. We trust, we put faith in something other than our works, which have no ability to save us. Isaiah says they're like filthy rags. Rather, we trust in someone whose life on earth was completely perfect in God's sight, namely Jesus Christ. That's how we are made just, by having faith in that Son of God, faith that comes outside of ourselves, an alien righteousness. That's how we are saved. But in order for us to be adequately prepared for the unknown in 2010, we need to be able to do the last part of that verse. The just, that's how we are saved, the just now must live by faith. These are the words that are picked up by Paul in Galatians. And Galatians is written to a people who had started in faith, but now had stopped living by faith. They went back to the old Jewish traditions, and they started to try to please God by their rituals, by their feasts, by the rite of circumcision, and all that stuff that made up the old system. And so Paul, in a loving way, gets right in their face. And he uses these words from Habakkuk to convince them that their faith is not something to, that you just do once you're converted and then you go back to your old ways. No, he says, faith should mark your life, your living. And so Paul encourages them to serve one another and to, and to walk by the Spirit and to, and to bear one another's burdens. All those great truths of, of, of Galatians. All these things that distinguish a life of faith. And so not only do you come to faith through Christ alone, but you also live by faith. 
Well, what does that look like? And Galatians talks about no longer carrying out the desires of your flesh, but rather walking by the Spirit. Living by faith is, stands in opposition to the desires of the world. We walk by faith, not by sight. So are you walking by faith? When the unexpected surprises of life hit, will you walk in faith, knowing that God is in control? What will you do when the trials of life come? What will you do when you have to face illness or suffering, either in your life or in the life of a loved one? Will your faith hold firm, or will it fall apart? In the last couple of months, I've heard of a couple of pastors that I read and listen to on occasion receive a diagnosis of cancer. One wrote a little article entitled, Christ Will Be Faithful in the Day of Trouble. And he wrote this. He wrote, one of the most helpful words for me during this struggle was something to the effect that part of having faith Part of having faith is having faith today that you will have the faith you need tomorrow. Part of having faith is having faith today that you will have the faith you need tomorrow. So what he's saying though, even though we wonder right now how we could possibly handle news like that, we need to cultivate that kind of faith today so that when the day comes, that faith will, will kick in and carry us through this trial. We'll be comforted knowing that God is not surprised by this. We'll be able to bear up under whatever comes our way. And of course, we have a model to help us with that. Our model is Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Christ was able to embrace trials because he knew what was coming. He knew that life on this earth was just a means to an end. And we can live that way too. I mentioned two pastors. The second one is a pastor in Dallas, Texas named Matt Chandler. Matt is 35 years old, pastor of a, of a vibrant church, but at the beginning of this month, he was diagnosed with brain cancer. And the elders wrote a letter to the church reporting the, the, the diagnosis to the rest of the congregation. And in that letter, after they, they make the initial report and, and, and the diagnosis and what's in store, they say this. They say, the Lord is calling Matt and Lauren, his wife, and this church to boldly endure this trial. It will be a challenging road for Matt, his family, and the church body. The gospel is our hope, and the Lord is our strength. Matt and Lauren continue to find solace and hope in Christ. They weep facing this trial, but not as those without hope and perspective. The gospel clarifies their suffering and promises more of Christ through it all." End quote. You ask yourself, how could they write these words knowing the, the severity and the, and the suddenness of this news? But they could write it because they had been prepared to live by faith. And they're prepared because they know the gospel, the gospel that comes through a suffering servant. And that gospel gives them hope and strength and comfort. They didn't expect this trial, but they know God does what he wills for his own good reasons and ultimately for our good and for his glory. We don't know what those purposes are. In his wisdom, he's chosen not to reveal them to us, but they are good and they are just, and God promises to keep us through those sufferings. To prepare for the circumstances of 2008, you must live by faith in Christ.
And that leads to the fourth way to prepare for whatever the Lord brings. In fact, all three of the, the previous ones lead nicely into this fourth manner of preparation, and that is to rejoice in God's sovereignty. After Habakkuk has, has had his say, and after God responds, Habakkuk finishes with this lovely prayer that we already talked about there in chapter 3. But then Habakkuk ends off with these beautiful words of trust in God's purposes in verses 16 to 19. He's realized through his little pilgrimage that these circumstances are not about him. They're not even about Israel. They're all about God and his glory. And that knowledge helps him then to trust God and his purposes for everything happening around him. He'd come a long way since chapter 1. Listen to those closing words again. Chapter 3, verse 16. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people who arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on the high places. When things don't go the way you think they should, will you still be able to say, yet I exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Will you put your trust in God that he will do what is right and what is good? And then will you be able to rejoice in God, even though the fig tree should not blossom? And there be no fruit on the vine, the fields produce no fruit, the yield of the olive tree should fail. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, there will be no cattle in the stalls. These are all agricultural terms that a lot of you know about. Some of you depend on yield yield and produce, and you feel this. But these are really pictures of things that are not going as we might expect them to go. After Habakkuk had come to a renewed understanding of God, he knew that even though life circumstances might bring hardship, yet God was in control of all of them. They weren't a surprise to to God. In fact, he allowed them to happen. It's all part of his mysterious but perfect plan. Don't let your circumstances change your view of God. In fact, rejoice in the God of your salvation, that he never changes, that he is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's what Habakkuk was able to do after God had transformed his perspective. So the question for you is, will you allow God to change you? If you're not a Christian, if you've tried to live your life without God, you need to ask yourself how you will react when life throws you a curveball when you're expecting fastball. What are you living for? What are the things in which you place your confidence? Because that's what ultimately matters. When rough times hit, that's what matters. It's where you put your trust. Is it at your friends? Is it your work? Is it pleasure? Is it in the stuff that you've managed to gather up over your life of hard work? Is it the the person that you've made yourself into? Listen, all those things, the Bible tells us, will fade away. 
when rough time comes, your friends might leave. Your savings, your possessions can't help you. And the reputation you've made for yourself won't matter. Can I strongly encourage you to turn to God, the one that never changes, the one that promises to never leave his children? Repent of your sins. Repent of your breaking of God's laws. Repent of ignoring God, of trying to live life your way. And put your confidence in Jesus and what he did on the cross for you. For you that are Christians, Habakkuk is really a call for us to examine our priorities, to think about our lives, to think about a future that is unknown to us but known to God. God doesn't promise comfort and a better life now. We live in a fallen world with death and pain and suffering and hurtful relationships. And even though we are redeemed, we still feel the effects of a world ravaged by the effects of sin. But our response can go one of two ways. It can lead to a questioning, complaining, insecure life where your emotions kind of just fluctuate with whatever circumstances come your way. Or you can be like the new Habakkuk and have a resolute, quiet confidence in God where you trust him, where you trust his word, where you're secure and you are rejoicing in the God of your salvation. As you look back on 2009, we can truly say, great is thy faithfulness, can't we? But as you look forward to 2010 and the many unknowns and the many tribulations that might come your way, I just encourage you to not be anxious. Trust in God. Recall how he has worked in the past. Make it a priority this year to listen to his word. Live by faith in God, and finally be joyful in God's sovereignty. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the reminder today that you are indeed a sovereign God. What comfort that brings us in changing times, in turbulent times. Thankful that we can trust in you. Thank you for helping us to be able to look back and to see the marvelous ways in which you have acted in history and the marvelous ways in which you have acted in our lives, even in this past year. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your abundant mercies. Lord, I pray that in 2010, we would resolve to be, and we need your help to do this, we would resolve to be attentive to your word and to live in such a way as we can live in faith in which we delight and rejoice in your sovereign purposes for our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.